Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? How is everybody doing? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF, the podcast. It's my podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all the feedback and all the influx of new people who got on board during the Ira Glass interview. I appreciate it. Welcome. Hope you enjoyed the Maz Jabrani interview. Let me just get a couple of things out of the way as we begin the show here. Let me just tell you one thing before I start is that it's now about 12 midnight. I don't usually record at this time, but I think it might be a good time to record because my brain, I don't know what's going on. It's quiet. Uh, my brain is not quiet. I just went and did a spot at the comedy store in the main room. I did okay. I did well. I didn't drive away feeling like I sucked. Right? I, you know, I don't drive away feeling like I sucked, but I drive away angry at the situation. This is the month of November. This is what's happening. I've already told you some of them, but this week, uh, November 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th, I will be in Cincinnati at Go Bananas. Uh, Check it out. They have a website. Go to it. I think it's GoBananasComedy.com. If you're in the area or you're close, you can find it. Go Bananas. How many Go Bananas comedy clubs are there? And then on the 11th, 12th, and 13th, I will be at the Punchline in San Francisco. Very excited about that. And November 15th, I will be in Pontiac, Michigan at the Crowfoot Ballroom. That's it for now. I'll I'll keep you up to speed on that stuff. What else is going on? Oh, what was I going to talk to you about? You know what, folks? I got to be honest with you. I'm. I seem to be in a relationship. Is that okay? Is that all right? I didn't think. I, I didn't think it would get here. I tried to fight her off. I tried to ruin it. I tried to scare her away. I've not been able to do that. This woman has remained steadfast in the face of all my childish bullshit, and I don't know how to handle it. But here we are. You know, she. I can't seem to scare her away, and I have feelings for this person. I care about her. I said it, I care about it, it's been choking me up, but now I'm concerned. Here's the problem, and maybe you guys have, have had this happen. All right, so you, you care about somebody, you've, got, you've gotten through the rough spots, the beginning where all the sex is just fueled by, you know, insane, like, you know, need and, and just sort of like you, you want to prove yourself, you just want to fuck all the time, and then you want to fight. If you don't want to fuck, you know, fighting works good because that's just as satisfying. And then if you fight and fuck, then you got the makeup sex and the, you know, the post-fighting fuck is the best, but you can't get hooked on that. And then you just go at it day in and day out. And then all of a sudden you just level off. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, now we really know each other. Sure. Oh, you just farted. Right. Great. Good job. No, that's okay. Yeah, you can. uh, Okay. Yeah. Just leave the door open. Uh, no, I'm, I'm all right. It's just the intimacy starts to be forged just by behavior. And then all the drama goes away because they can see past your bullshit and they can just see, oh, look, look at the man child. Look at the, she treats me like a child. Sometimes I deserve it. But what I'm saying is what now, how, what are we supposed to have? You know, intimate sex, like real stuff. We supposed to have emotional trust, like that kind of shit. I mean, I know what happens then. That's where you start eating instead of communicating. You start eating instead of fucking. You start sneaking out to the garage to masturbate instead of have uh, you know an open relationship with the an open communication with the person you're with. I don't want to get fat. 
number one, and I don't want to I don't want to jerk off in my garage. So I'm just gonna have to man up and deal with this relationship and just let myself like this person. Is that all right with you guys? That's all I'm saying. And I'm not gonna get fat. I'm gonna get intimate. That's the decision I've made. Today on the show, Adam McKay. That's right. I went over there to uh to uh, Funnier Die slash Gary Sanchez Productions to the offices, and I sat down with Adam McKay for about an hour or so. And uh, I, if you don't know him, he's he's the director of the other guys. He directed uh, Step Brothers. He directed uh, Talladega Nights, Anchorman. He co-wrote a lot of those. He's uh, his production partner is Will Ferrell, and they uh, they're doing uh, Eastbound and Down. He's a big force in the comedy world right now. A Funnier Die is uh, is his website. Well, look, so I sat down with him in his office. We had a good conversation. Here's something else I want to bring up. I've been doing this show a while. People enjoy the show. People like to be on this show. People I like to have on the show are on the show. That's the way it works for me. Or people who are interesting to me or something exciting. That's who I put on the show. Now, I do get requests to be on the show. Some comics, they email me and they politely say, I don't know if you know me, uh, you know, take a look at my stuff. I'd like to be on the show. And I talk to them. And, you know, and, and I'm very excited that people want to be on the show. And I'm excited that people like to listen to the show. But I got a series of emails the other day that just blew my fucking mind. Blew my mind in the sense that, look, I know comics. I've been doing this a long time. In one form or another, you know, I've been around and in this business for a long time now. And there's a lot of guys I know. There's a lot of guys I know who know guys. You know how it is. I mean, it's a community. We've established that from you listening to the show. I get a series of emails out of the blue from a guy I don't know, nor have I ever heard of. And I'm not going to mention his name for a couple of reasons. He was a fucking dick on these emails, and I couldn't quite believe his angle. Look, I'm very proud about what I'm doing here. I finally figured out something that I'm pretty good at outside of comedy, and I'm enjoying it, and I'm enjoying doing, you know, talking to comedians. But I get these series of emails. Here's the first one, subject line. Prick, fuck, alt comics who don't earn any money doing comedy who give advice. I'd like to be on your podcast. Subject, how I stopped listening to bitter, jaded, angry, dysfunctional, prick, fuck, alt-village comics who tell me not to do my style of comedy and now earn over $250,000 a year without ever having a drink, drug, cigarette, or prescription drug and without a single credit, in quotes, meaning a TV credit, without a manager or agent and without being passed at a single club in the city. So this guy is basically saying, put me on your show. I've done nothing that normal comics do to pay their dues and find their own voice. And I have somehow figured out a way to make a quarter million dollars a year and having nobody heard of me. Congratulations. Then I get another email because I didn't respond to that one. P.S. One of my YouTube videos is about to hit 900,000 views. Wow. There are cats that have more views than that. Then this. This is the one that got me, by the way. We'll pay you $1,000 cash if you put me on your podcast. And I'm dead serious. I did not respond to these things because I went and looked at his stuff. There was a lot of him opening for other people, a lot of celebrities bringing him on. Uh, He's got a lot of footage of corporate gigs that he does with people bringing him on at corporate gigs. Did not respond to that, to the we'll pay you $1,000 cash. P.S. $1,000 should buy lots of Coke. 
The audacity, entitlement of this fucking guy just drove me nuts. So I wrote, not going to say his name. I appreciate that you want to be on the show. I will not have you on the show. Your tone is entitled and insulting and you can't buy your way onto my show. If you listen to me or the podcast, you would know that I don't do drugs and haven't for years. I'm excited to share your emails in this email exchange on the show and talk about how I feel right now. I hope that will get you the attention and validation you were looking for. Thanks, Marin. So after I wrote back to him, he goes, ha ha. But as you yourself would say, they're just words, right? Funny how that's what it took to get a response. Just make sure you spell my name right. How about $5,000? And then he goes on to write, I'll give you a little background. As a working comedian who makes a living doing what I love, earning as much as $15,000 for an hour's work, I'm absolutely sick and tired of quote-unquote comedians who tell me that I shouldn't be doing the material I'm doing. They tell me I shouldn't be doing ethnic comedy, that I shouldn't be doing impressions, that I shouldn't be doing corporate stuff. And what makes this ironic is that many of these people have never earned a single dollar doing comedy. So let me interject here. So they're willing to take the risk at not making money in order to honor or service their voice. Whereas this gentleman would prefer just to sell out completely and then justify himself and still be angry. What makes these people who are only doing comedy as an unpaid hobby experts on the art of comedy? What gives them the right to tell another artist the type of material he or she shouldn't or shouldn't be doing? It's like a heavy metal artist telling another musician that he shouldn't do country music or Rembrandt telling Monet not to do impressionist paintings. (laughs) This guy's got a pretty lofty idea of who he is in the world. If this were an occasional problem, I could deal with it, but I'm sick and tired of being hammered day in and day out by these negative loser drug addicts and alcoholics. Last time I checked, this is a free country, and I have the right to do whatever kind of comedy I feel like doing. And I wrote back to him. I said, I know exactly who you are and what you are saying, and congrats on all your success. It is a free country, and I will never put you on my podcast, you arrogant, entitled, miserable person. If you are a comic, I'm glad that you're doing so well with it. And it's uh, it's sad that you're so angry and you, that you have no credits and nobody knows who you are. And you were, it's weird because, you know, you were at SNL for years. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, what, from 95 to, what, 2001 or something? That's right. That's very correct. And, uh, you know, that environment used to be just a, a drug hole. We, it was funny, we came there and the drug hole times had faded. And also, it used to be a very cutthroat environment. And the people, the veterans there used to always comment, like, where did all these nice people come from? Like, they were almost pissed that we were all so nice because it was like Will Ferrell, Molly Shannon. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. It was actually a good gang of people. Yeah. So the first two years we were there, we didn't drug hole it, but we drank hole it. Uh, we did some major drinking, and uh, we all got fat and unhealthy. And then year two, all of us started working out. And, uh, That's hilarious. Everyone lost 30 or 40 pounds because we realized we were going to die if we kept doing what we're doing. But, uh, uh, yeah, we had two years of good debauchery, for sure. And, but it's just interesting that I don't know if it's, um, yeah, I don't know if it's, by, I guess it wouldn't be, because I was thinking, your, your background, did you ever do stand-up? 
I did stand up in Philadelphia. I actually started doing stand up with Paul F. Tompkins in uh, in like '87. I was doing stand up with him in Philly. In Philly, uh-huh. and uh, so, it was yeah. only the two of you in that comedy scene and a bunch of black guys. That oh, you're you're not far off. There was a big <laughs> black comedy scene there. Yeah, um, I know some of those dudes. Yeah, yeah. Rocky Wilson was really funny back then. I don't know what he's doing. Keith Robinson. Keith Robinson's around. Yeah, yeah. Keith was fantastic. He's great. And, uh, so yeah, I started doing. You know, I was I was nothing great. I was like an MC, and I middled a couple times. And uh, you know, and and actually, my act just got worse and worse every year. And by the end, I had an act that worked but was terrible. So I was like, enough of this. And I moved to Chicago and did Second City. And so it was just uh, that. But you knew you didn't want to get out of comedy. Yeah, no, I loved comedy, and I was a pretty good writer back then. I'd done some college radio stuff, and I knew I could write sketches. And a buddy of mine went to Chicago and studied with Del Close, and he came back and he said. There's this old hipster teaching this form where you get on stage, you can do whatever you want. Like you improvise plays and anything you say happens. Oh, we're on the moon. And literally I was just like, I'm coming out there. Hold on. And I was in my senior year of college. I dropped out and sold my comic book collection. Got a Chrysler New Yorker uh, from uh, my mom used to work with the elderly. A guy had died. So I bought his Chrysler New Yorker for 800 bucks uh, with a Jethro Tull uh, eight track and uh, listened to Skating Away on the Thin Ice and drove to Chicago and then did improv. How long did you grieve the passing of your comic books? Uh, not for one second. I, I thought it was the best exchange ever. I was like, oh, this is perfect. Because like, you always hear the stories, oh, my mom threw out the comics. And it's like I knew exactly what I was getting for them. The trade was a car so I could go do this thing. I was like, this actually makes, there's a balance to this. You know? <laughs> what, what titles did you give up there? I had, you know what I had? I had a ton of new X-Men. I had, uh, I had X-Men 94 yeah. all the way through like 140, like doubles of a lot of them. Yeah. Mint condition. I had Captain America 100, the new Captain America number one. I had a bunch of that kind of stuff. I had the Hulk uh, with Wolverine's first appearance. That was probably my best book. Uh huh. Um, so I got 800 for it. You know, if you actually listed it, it might have been worth 3000 but you never get the list price. So That's right. I was fairly savvy about it. Oh, that's yeah. good. I'm talking to Adam McKay at the offices of uh, Gary Sanchez Productions. Why, why that name? You know, that, that is a great, great question. I still don't know why. Uh, Will, on his BlackBerry, put a fake name on his BlackBerry. Right. And just randomly said Gary Sanchez. And we were trying to think of a name of the company. And I said, what about Gary Sanchez? <laughs> and then only like four months later did I realize most people thought it was a Dirty Sanchez reference, <laughs> which I hate. <laughs> I, uh, didn't, I didn't think that. Oh, good, good. Okay. All right. I get that a lot. And I'm like, no, thought, not I, at all. I thought it was probably more likely a story like you just told me. That was so just now some, I feel like that's even kind of dull. There's no, be it's a not dull, one. but it just had to be something ridiculous, you know, but not dirty. Yeah. yeah. So your you're Will's your partner in this? Will is my partner in this. Uh, Chris Henschey, uh runs the day-to-day, and we have uh, Owen Burke of uh, Upright Citizens Brigade fame is also a producer here. Kevin Messick, uh, Jessica Elbaum, and yeah, it's like a nice little group of seven or eight people. So when you went to Chicago, um, now you immersed yourself, and Dell was still alive. Dell was still alive, so I had the incredible fortune of getting to study with him. Now, was Besser, were, the, were these contemporaries of yours, Besser, and named Poehler, and uh, Walsh, and the, and the Upright Citizen Gay people? Is that where you met them? That was my group, yeah. We, we started on an improv team, and it was, Besser wasn't on, it was this guy, Rick Roman was my friend who had told me to come out, and there was a guy named Miles Stroth, and then we started recruiting from other groups. We'd see someone and go, oh, they're funny. So we found Besser on this other team. He's like, I want to join you guys. Uh-huh. And then we saw Ian Roberts on some lower team. And we're like, he's funny. So we got him. And then Neil Flynn came in. And so 
we had this group called the family that did like we became Dell's experimental team and we would do kind of new forms for him and oh really so Dell this was towards the end of his life yeah was, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so was he trying to reinvent himself along uh, uh, using you guys? He was always reinventing himself. I mean, he was always trying new forms and stuff. So he was definitely using us to get more elaborate with it. And, you know, we did one called the deconstruction and we uh, a form an improv form. We did one called the improvised movie. I mean, he always had new forms for us and we would do them as kind of long form three act shows would, would be what we do. And then out of that, we loved doing improv, but Ian, uh, Matt, and myself, and then we met Horatio Sands, decided to go do a group together, the Upright Citizens Brigade. What was deconstruction? Deconstruction was you start with a long, fairly serious improvised scene, and then you break the scene apart through a bunch of other scenes. You go backwards, forwards, you take elements, and you kind of shatter the opening scene. So if it's the scene between the two of us talking on microphones, uh, then the scene I would go to is you buying the microphones or oh. I would do, if you asked me about the name for Gary Sanchez and I said, I wish the story was better then we would do an amazing story about Gary Sanchez. So you just take pieces of it and kind of regurgitate it. Not that complicated. But you don't, you don't, you don't state the, uh, the form. You just, that's what you start with. And that's there, how it works. I think with the first couple of shows we did, we actually had a program. So it would, so people that do the deconstruction in Chicago still call it the deconstruction. Oh, it's, you were there at the beginning of the deconstruction. Oh yeah. yeah you were they, the, you were an original deconstructivist on we, we, we were, we were. I named it actually. I, I was an English, I was an English major, so I had my uh, pretentious English major speak at the ready. You were an English major. I was an English major. I As was, was uh, I. Were you really? Yeah. Temple, Temple University. I That's went a to. good one. Yeah. I went to BU. Did you go to BU? Yeah. I almost went to BU. Who were your guys? My I guys. Mean, I was early twentieth century American, so I was. Uh, who did I love? I loved Thomas Wolfe. Yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of Thomas Wolfe. A lot of Faulkner. Yeah, the Faulkner, dude. It's just like laboring over the sound and the fury. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember doing that. I thought Faulkner had, you know, all, everything you need to know is in there if you can figure it out. If you can figure it out, it's all there. And John Dos Passos was big, Sherwood yeah. Anderson, all yeah. those kinds of dudes. And then as I stopped reading what was required, I got more into Henry Miller and the kind of early 20th century stuff. Because I was in my early 20s. You have to sure. read Henry Miller. You got to read about fucking. You got to read about fucking so you can slowly approach it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And learn how it's, you're not going to be Henry Miller. No, you're not. In fact, Henry Miller wasn't Henry yeah. Miller. It takes yeah. a lot of energy and, and a lot of charm to maintain the, the tropics. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be able to wear a fedora, which I couldn't <laughs> yeah. do. So, uh, so yeah. So uh, we, we got to work on these forms and then we started the Upright Citizens Brigade, which its initial incarnation was more of like a street kind of performance prank group. Like we would take audiences back to my house and do a scene in my living room and we I advertised my own suicide at one point and actually got on top of a building with like you know 300 audience members and it was a lot of like leaving the theater and doing live kind of scenes any arrests and, uh, we had one arrest Horatio Sands got arrested for leading the entire crowd uh, onto North and Damon uh, busy busy street by the way with uh, tiki torches and plastic guns and calling for the head of uh, Congressman Dan Rostenkowski on a platter. And I was supposed to drive by in a car and hit him to end the revolution. And as I pulled around, I saw that he had handcuffs on and a cop car was pushing him in. And we actually have video footage of it. He actually yells, fight the power, as he's pushed into the cop car. And 300 people cheer. And, and then, of course, as soon as they started driving away, Horatio went, I'm an actor. I'm an actor. And, <laughs> the revolution uh, was ended the real way. <laughs> improv over. Improv I, over. I, I assume that the cops did say no and ended the improv. They ended the improv and quickly realized Horatio was not a dangerous guy and let him 
him go. They did. Yeah, they did. They did. Well, you know what? They were scared of cameras. That's what it was. At that time? Because I got pulled over once. We used to do an improvised scene where we'd pull an audience member out. I'd take them on a car ride like it was a Kerouac trip across the country. And one time I got pulled over for doing an illegal turn, and the cameraman was next to me, and the cop came up yelling at me, what the fuck are you doing? You can't do that. And then he saw the camera and instantly was like, just be careful. And yeah, left. yeah, yeah. Just be careful. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, we had a couple encounters with the police. Definitely. Now, in, in terms of like this, like I'm always fascinated by, uh, you know, guys like you who have an office <laughs> and, uh, and, and a life and you seem to be, you, you make a lot of movies. So as you were, you know, creating, you know, uh, pulling together the UCB at the beginning, I, you, you then got a job at SNL. Well, yeah, I never, I mean, one of the great advantages I had to doing this kind of work was I had no expectations of grandeur, none. I was like, I love doing improv. I love teaching. I used to teach. So you never saw yourself as a, as a guy who ran an operation or as somebody who was getting into show business as never, a business? Never, not for one second. And anytime I would make money from doing it, I'd be like, oh my God, I made $35 teaching improv. It like felt weird to me. I mean, I guess I grew up with working class enough parents that it just didn't jive, but I didn't right. care. I right. was like, I'm broke. I have a you know mangy roommate. So what? And then, so the real turning point was I was in Upright Citizens Brigade. We're making no money, but it's fun as hell. Yeah. And Second City has auditions. And at that time, they had just gotten a new artistic director. So they were starting to hire some pretty cool people. They had hired like Dave Keckner and Brian Stack. Who I know Keckner. Yeah. And, yeah. St and Stack and Kevin Dorff, who writes for Conan. Yeah. Um, and these were guys who were really respected in the improv world. Right. So I was like, you know what, man, I'll just go do an audition. Like, well, how many times do you get to audition with improv? So I right. went by and I got in. Now, with Second City at that time, like, it seems to me that given that the Upright Citizen Brigade were just starting out and that they were doing radical stuff, I mean, Second City was still a more attractive game than you? Uh, it was the only, I, I was not thinking I would ever get in. Yeah. I knew they paid, which was just an insane concept to me. And it was still in Chicago. Still in Chicago. And I knew that they were starting to do cooler stuff. I mean, right. before that, it was a lot of musical comedy, blackouts, even though they had crazy talented people. I mean, they had Colbert. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, oh, really? Colbert was there oh, too? Oh, yeah. So they were all in Second City at that time? It was, I, I that, that was one of the other reasons I was interested because I saw that main stage cast and was like, holy shit, man, there's some good stuff going on here. And, it was Sedaris, Colbert, Carell, Paul Danello. Uh, Mitch Rouse? Uh, Mitch Rouse, was he in it? No, he was not. Okay. He, he had done more of the improv road. Uh, and then there was a woman, Fran Adams and Ruthie Rudnick. Who was was David Sedaris part of it too? No, no. And uh, so I saw that show and we were blown away. Carell was the guy. We were like, holy, Carell and Colbert. Like, wow, these guys are really sharp. And so suddenly it wasn't as square to go to Second City. It was like, all right, well, they're doing some cool shit. Some of my friends just got hired. I'll audition and see what happens. That was yeah. my thinking. So I auditioned. I got into the uh, touring company. And, uh, you know, you tour around to colleges and you do these little shows and stuff. And it was pretty fun. I was with Jay Johnstone from Mr. Show, was in my group. Uh, Nancy, He's a genius. Uh, I love Jay. We yeah. became really good friends. We yeah. did a lot of stuff together. I introduced him to Paul Tompkins later. And they ended up doing Mr. Show together. But uh, we had a guy named Pat Finn was in our group. We had really funny people in our group. And Carell would sometimes come with us. So I did that. And then it became apparent that it was taking too much time. So I had to quit the Upright Citizens Brigade. I remember Besser was very pissed at me. But I'm like, dude, I'm broke. I have no money. And this is actually kind of fun. And so that was before they put the school together and everything else. Oh, well before. Yeah, yeah. We were a, you know, we had gotten really good reviews in Chicago. We'd done some shows that had sold out. So we had a little name going for ourselves. But... 
you know, at the most you're making $40 a weekend or, you know, it's just not enough to do anything. And I'm starting to get to my mid-20s. So, you know, sleeping on the friend's couch is getting a little, you know, I have pretty high tolerance for shitty living, but it was was starting to push that. So so I got into Second City and then, uh, lo and behold, had a lot of fun. They let us write original material for the road. We were doing long-form improv, which they hadn't really done there before. And sketch? I mean, you guys did write sketch? We, uh, Jay and I wrote a ton of stuff together. That you'd perform on stage? It wasn't strictly improv then? It wasn't strictly improv. It was uh, original written pieces, greatest hits, and then we would do our improv. So we were doing stuff like mini heralds and deconstructions and doing them in like, you know, St. Louis or, you know, North Dakota Teachers College or something like that. Were and, there bad gigs? Oh, plenty, plenty. Yeah. We did one at a Christian university and the previous act that had come the year before was Carrot Top. Uh-huh. And it was dead silence the entire show and some booze. And when we got off the first thing, the guy said is, well, I should have hired Carrot Top again. I mean, you know, so we had those. You offended them with the opening uh, uh, Jesus as a woman bit? Uh, they did not appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, da Vinci Code hadn't come out. Yeah. You know, the ideas weren't in people's heads. <laughs> so, but we had a fucking blast, man. It was like we would laugh our asses off in the van. We would just do bits all day long. That's it's funny all- that like a lot of people don't re- realize that because I talked to uh, Paul Shear about this as well. Uh, recently that uh you know that improv guys do this same road shit i mean that you know i always draw these lines between stand-up and improv but there is a world of improv where you guys go out and do shitty gigs no question no question i've done my fair share i mean we did one with the family with besser and ian that was like a catholic carnival and we used to do an improv game called the dream where you would bring a guy up he'd tell you about his day and then you'd do his dream that night yeah pretty simple game always kills because it's audience involvement and you could actually do cool stuff with it sure so we bring a guy up, and about a minute into it, we realize he's got a learning disability, and he's just a sweet, like, 19-year-old guy who's really slow. And we're all looking at each other like, what do you do? You can't make fun of this guy's stuff. And it was one of those great moments, I compare it to, like, 12 Angry Men, where something wonderful happened that no one will ever know about. We all just did verbatim his day with no laughs whatsoever, ate it. And then just ended the show. And it was like, we all kind of looked at each other like we did the right thing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, some crazy, you get crazy jobs off of that. Um, And then at a second city, uh, that's that's where you got the opportunity for SNL or? Well, I got, I had a a great experience where Tom Giannis was a director there who who later went on to write for Saturday Live. And he came to me and he was doing the main stage show. And I was doing, they have a second theater there called Second City ETC. And I was in there and it was all right. I was kind of missing Upright Citizens Brigade. By now, I think they had started using Matt Walsh. Missing him why? Because of the structure? Yeah, because we were doing crazy great shit with the Upright Citizens Brigade. But the Second City had sort of a work ethic. Exactly. I'd just done a show that was so-so. It was okay. It had some funny stuff in it. There were some good people. But it just, I wasn't excited about it. I wasn't telling my friends, like, you got to see this. Right, right. So I was actually thinking of quitting. I was actually thinking, like, you know what? The only reason I do this, if I just want to make money, I'll be a bank teller. So I might as well quit. And uh I remember my friends going, you can't do that. You're like on a stage. People die for that. I'm like, I don't care. I want to do cool stuff. Yeah. So Tom Janis came to me, and I'd kind of gotten to be friendly with him. And he said, look, I'm doing a main stage show. I want to break every rule, and I want you to do, it, to do it. And they have a pecking order there. You're supposed to kind of go in order of seniority for who gets on the main stage. And I'm like, well, I just got here. And he's like, I don't care. I'm going to bring you on a main stage. And I said, you're for real. Like, we can really do whatever we want to do. And he's like, yes, I mean it. And so we started having lunches. And he would ask me, like, if you could open a show any way you wanted, what would you do? And I'd say, well, I'd put the cast in gas masks and I'd accuse the audience of crimes against humanity. And he'd go, all right, 
great. And they'd go, what else would you do? And he would just ask me these crazy questions and I would give him dream answers like I've always wanted to do this. And then there was already a little bit of a hold over main stage cast, but then he went and he picked other people like John Glazier, you know, from Delocated. I know Glazier, yeah. Rachel Dratch, and he started handpicking other people and he told everyone, we're not doing a traditional show. And so we did this show called Pinata Full of Bees. It was heavily political, aggressive, strange. Tina Fey too or no? Uh, not yet. Yeah. No, no. And uh, so we did this show and it was sort of like the show that broke the rules at Second City and half the people hated it and half the people loved it. It ended up being their longest running show and they still talk about it today. You know, it's kind of got a little political themes, huge political themes. There's a scene where I played Noam Chomsky as a substitute teacher for a second grade class. Oh, my God. I just got tired. <laughs> it killed, though, because yeah, I would sure, explain yeah. the real Thanksgiving and the kids would be horrified by what I'd say. And, yeah. And we sort of figured out how to do kind of that kind of comedy in the right dose and size. So the whole audience was laughing and. Out of scenes, we would just freeze the scene and pop up and give statistics about, you know, defense spending versus welfare spending. And then, boom, go right back into the scene. You'd actually get laughs off the timing of it. And we didn't do any, like, musical theatery stuff. We used all, like, cuts of songs we liked. and our You did real satire. We did real satire, yeah. As opposed and, to entertainment. And we ended the show by getting the audience to throw their blockbuster cards on stage. And we cut them in half because they're editing movies in a right-wing family. And by the end of the run, we had, like, 20,000 blockbuster cards cut in half. And, oh, that's uh, hilarious. Uh, so yeah, so it was one of the, I call it one of the greatest creative experiences to this day I've ever had. It was like complete freedom, uh, a cast in sync, a director in sync, and we got to do exactly the show we wanted to do. We had no lights up, lights down. We smashed down the stage. It was just a brick wall and it was like, yeah, it was one of those like amazing experiences. And you were able to get audiences around it. It didn't, you know, over Packed. time. Right. Packed. Yeah, because we had enough laughs. Right. I mean, and that's when I kind of started to learn. If you get laughs, you can do anything you want. You can shove anything you want into someone's head. You really can. If you get laughs. It's true. And uh, so then I got hired for Siren Live off of that. They came and saw the show. Lauren loved the show. And, uh, well, it's probably reminded him what the show used to be on some I, level. I think so. I think that early 70s kind of, it had that vibe to it. No it's, it's interesting. Have you watched the early, have you watched the first season? of SNL lately? Yeah, I don't know what you're going to say, but I'll, I'll say this. It's surprisingly shitty. Well, not only is it shitty, but there's very little comedy. A very little comedy. You know what it was? It was more about cool people. It was based on the, on the variety show model. I think it was sort of based on Catch a Rising Star, where you'd have a singer, a comic, and then like several commercial parodies and maybe one sketch. Exactly, exactly. And when I say shitty, I just mean the one sketch would last 16 minutes and would go long stretches without laughs. And so I don't mean shitty because it was really cool. It was a hip but like, show. I remember when I was 13. I don't know how old you are. How old are you? Uh, I'm 42. I'm 47. So I remember watching it. And in my mind, it has this mythic place. And then when I jumped through the hoops with Lauren, you know, at some point, you know, an audition process. Oh, you, you were going to maybe do update at one point. Right. I remember hearing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and what happened was um, what I remember in conversation with him, he's very careful. He's very deliberate in saying that. He doesn't want that season, he doesn't want that first cast to be held as mythic as they are. Because right. he's very careful to say, look, we've had a lot of good casts. Well, like, it's, it's true, though. I actually. Oh, no, that, it is true. Yeah. But at that moment, I was like, fuck you, man, Belushi. There's no Belushis. Yeah, you know, like I, yeah. And then I realized like, I'm, I'm limited in my thinking. You know, I say the best seasons are the Phil Hartman, Mike Myers, Jan Hooks. Those seasons when Jack Handy was in his prime. Yeah. And, those seasons were amazing. And oh, that's yeah. That's when like Downey and Conan and Odenkirk and all those guys and Smigel were right. all in rare form. When it became an act, I think that the weird thing that, that I started to realize and even talking to you and in and, and, and sort of how your careers evolved is that initially the, the success of it was was it was 
no one knew that would happen. And Lauren was taking a chance and he was yeah. dealing with these, you know, drugged up, wacky, you know, kind of second city people and, and some New York radio people and whoever they were. And it worked out. It got a following. But then as it became a machine, the demand for, for new and, and, and real comedy talent, you know, writing, you know, you know, progress, you know sort of people that take chances. Sure, and, sure. I mean, it sort of evolved into that and became the place where people sort of cut their teeth. Well, it, it, they all of a sudden it became monetized, monetized because it's like, well, the bees were a big hit. Samurai Deli was a big hit. Why aren't you doing more of that? That's right. the stuff that's making the money. And so that easygoing early vibe of, hey, here's Leon Redbone. <laughs> Where is Leon Redbone now? <laughs> Lazy yeah, boy. Yeah, Paul Tompkins and I used to joke that there have been seven Leon Redbones, that he's like the Philly mascot, you yeah, know, like yeah, the yeah, Philly yeah. fanatic. Yeah, that's funny. And, uh, I'm, I'm close to Leon Redbone now, too, with facial hair. Yeah, that's right. Right, right now it's the Tom, uh, Tom Gione uh, Leon Redbone, who I like a lot. He's like uh -huh. the first Doctor Who, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good one now. He's a little more uh, wiry and more <laughs> his nose have you than, seen him recently uh i saw the dave jangers leon redbone in 82 uh -huh. and then i saw the steve tamez leon redbone <laughs> who i liked a lot but this guy now is my favorite okay. so uh, <laughs> uh but yeah that easygoing kind of we're smoking pot between scenes kind of vibe which really infectious you could feel it that these were the some of the coolest yeah, people was, in new york i like that too yeah uh, that definitely went away it got tighter and more aggressive who was there when you got there who was the crew uh, I was during the turnover. I was there. I came in 95 when they had done the New York Magazine Saturday Night Live dead character uh, cover. Yeah. That said the show was done with. Right. So they had to let a lot of their cast go and a lot of their writers go. So there was like a group of, I'm going to say 12 new writers and like seven new cast members came in. It was a total changeover. The only holdovers at that time were Fred Wolf, who's one of my favorite sketch writers. And, uh, I remember him as a comic. Oh, man, he's a funny dude. He is. And, uh, and then we had uh, Tim Meadows was still there. Molly Shannon was a holdover, but not really. She had been a featured player. And Steve Corin was a holdover. Jim Downey was a holdover. There were a couple left, but basically it was a new group. Who was in that cast? I can't that remember. That was Will Farrell. That was Molly became a big player. That was... Um, Oh, God. Sherry O'Terry. That was... Tim Meadows became a big player in that cast. We had uh, Jim Brewer, uh, who hates me, by the way. Uh, and um, Why? Uh, he thinks I'm the one who fired him from yeah. Saturday Night Live. Uh, Were you a head writer or just a writer? Well, I did one year as staff writer, and then the next year I got promoted to head writer. So um, How long did you hold that? I was head writer for three years, and then I was going to quit. I thought time to move on, and uh, and then my manager Jimmy Miller said, "Well, you should make a really unreasonable demand." So I said, "I want to raise. I don't want to have to ever go to a production meeting. I won't be head writer anymore, but I want to name my credit and I want to make short films." And he said, "Yes." So I was coordinator of falconry for two years. My last two years. Coordinator of falconry. Yeah, I actually have it framed right there. The actual. They put credit. that on the credit. And they actually put that in the credit, and uh, that was my job for my last two years. I made short films, wrote sketches, and just hung around. It was a blast. And but, creatively, what what was the impetus that you know, that you wanted to have the freedom to start doing movies? Yeah, you know, I I had done the head writer thing for three years. What you learn pretty quickly is it is Lauren's show. I mean, you know, I would fight. I got Tenacious D on the show. I did some some good stuff. I pushed for more political stuff, but yeah. ultimately, it's his show. He has a way he wants to see it, which I totally understand. He freaking created it. And you realize there's only so much pushing and shoving you can do within that. And I had ideas for how I wanted it to be. And at a certain point, I'd look at myself through Lauren's eye and goes, God, I must be so obnoxious to him. Like, yeah. you know, I'm telling him, like, let's just swing the camera over and go into another scene right away. Like, stuff like that. Like, he just must be like, oh, God, you yeah. know. 
So I was like, yeah, I'll leave and I'll go work on, uh, maybe I'll pitch my own show. I had some ideas yeah. and start writing screenplays. And, uh, and then I stayed and did those shorts and those ended up being the greatest thing ever because it was like I got to learn how to make movies, you know, and I had a real crew and I worked with Steve Buscemi and Willem Dafoe and Ben Stiller and shot 16 millimeter. And then the second year I did digital shorts and any crazy idea I got to shoot, uh, I got to do. And, uh, and you had people you, had, you, know, you could draw from the, the, the crew as a cinematographer and that kind of stuff. I went and ca- I got an independent producer, uh, this guy, John Irwin, who now produces the celebrity rehab shows, which I haven't uh-huh. talked to him in a long time. But uh, he went and you got You might want to talk to him. I think he might need an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> a TV intervention. By the way, if you're John Irwin, don't you get a drinking problem just so <laughs> everything collapses on itself? Uh, and so he got me a DP. This guy, oh, what was his name? Anthony Clark, I think his name was. And he went on to shoot the Bruno movie. He's actually uh-huh. been pretty successful. He was an amazing DP, and I had my own crew, and it was uh, it was an amazing experience. And now the it, now, so you met Will Ferrell at SNL. Yeah, we met. We were both hired on the same day, ninety five. But we all thought he was the straight man for the cast because he's a very normal guy when you meet him. He seems very unassuming, and he's not a bad looking guy. And we thought, well, he must have needed like a Brad Hall guy. Like that's who he is. And right. Meanwhile, we're all rambunctious, loud from Chicago, it's Kechner, it's me, Tom Giannis is a hockey player, and yeah. we're doing constant bits and drinking yeah. beer and just, you know, being jerks, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And Will's pretty quiet, pretty normal guy, so we're just, hey, whatever, you know, nice guy, don't even think anything of it. I start writing with Norm Hiscock, who's the former head writer for Kids in the Hall, he and I hit it off, and we kind of have our little group, and then the first read-through, Will just uncorks, and you hear these characters come out of him you can't believe, and he's written sketches, and we're like, holy shit, this guy's... But that's even still not how I started working with him. Then we just started hanging out, and he was one of the few L.A. guys who would do bits with us, who would, you know, we'd go to a bar, and he would wear, like, some cardboard Stanley Cup hat that had been sent to SNL as a promotional item, and I would tell the bartender he's Cuphead from the Rangers games. I don't know how you want to handle this. you got a celebrity in the place. Right. And we'd all chant Cuphead and act like he's this guy from Rangers games. And <laughs> so he was just game. We do crazy shit like that all the time. Well, and- I think he's like, you know, I, like I, I, I picture myself, hope, I, I'd like to interview him. But like I find him so funny. I don't really even know who that guy is, which is one of the reasons I do this show. Yeah. With, without like he seems to have this rare gift of being able to just turn something on in himself and everything is just funny he's i always think the spirit of it is that he likes to fuck with people that's basically it he's a crank phone call guy at heart right and so nothing makes us laugh harder than playing ridiculous shit with the best deadpan you can play it he's with. a prankster he is he, he i always say all of our movies are a joke that we're even making them as movies that's right. like part of the inherent joke of them is that they gave us this equipment and let us do this. But he also has a lot of heart to his comedic persona. It's just sort of, it's sort of interesting that like, you know, I, for some reason there's that moment in, uh, I don't, I don't think it was one of your movies though, but I'm going to bring it up anyways. The moment in old school. Yeah. Where, where he's about to take that first drink. Oh, it's the best. Like, yeah, no, when it hits your lips, it's, it's good. <laughs> it's bitter when it goes down, but it tastes. Yeah. Just yeah. that moment. is so human to me. I, it's like, like out of a lot of moments and he just, uh, he seems like a heart, a heart. Well, he's also heart. an incredibly decent guy. I mean, he's right. a very healthy dude. He doesn't have a runaway ego. Right. He loves his family. I mean, he likes to, you know, and he's also one of those guys who's not such a good guy that it's annoying. Right. He's, you know, he'll drink too much sometimes and, sure. you know, gossip and but he's a good heart. Guy. but he's a really decent guy so the, the relationship just evolved out of a friendship 
we, we finally wrote a sketch together. I think it was late in our first year. We wrote one called Neil Diamond Storytellers, right. which was him as Neil Diamond doing the old storyteller show. And all the stories behind his <laughs> banal pop songs were just hideous stories of hit and runs and <laughs> yeah. molestation. And yeah, yeah. So we hit it off. We yeah. wrote that sketch. It worked really well. And, and we just easy writing with each other. We're not big overthinkers. I mean, you know, we rewrite, but we're not crazy wringing your hand kind of guys. We're like, look, it should have fun. It should have a flow to it. And then we just started writing together, and uh, and then he had a slot. He owed a movie to Paramount after one of those early SNL adaptation movies he did, and uh, so we wrote a car salesman script together called August Blowout, which never got made. But it was so much fun writing it. He's like, "Let's do it again," and we wrote Anchorman together, which hilarious. We couldn't get made, you know. You couldn't get it made. Oh God, no! That took like every studio in town said no to it. What we? How was how strong was his celebrity at that point? He had not hit. That right. was it. He right. had had, like, Roxbury had made a profit. Everyone in the comedy world knew he was the next big thing. Yeah. But the studio heads aren't as connected to that. From them, it's just purely about the numbers. What has he done? Right. Uh, then our script was crazy on top of it uh, for that time. Right. You know? And uh, so we rewrote it. It was actually really crazy when we first wrote it. And then we, we toned it down, and it was still pretty crazy. And several studios said, we already said no to this. Don't ever send us this again. <laughs> like, they, they were mad. Yeah. That, like, and then Old School hit. And right after Old School hit, DreamWorks called us and said, let's, let's do it again. We want to do Anchorman. And we got to make it. So. And it's funny as hell. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. That was fun. That was, that, was uh, that and the Second City show are two of the great creative experiences I've ever had. I mean, we just improvised and it was all friends and it was just we once again did whatever we wanted to right. do and DreamWorks was very cool about it. And interesting, and the cameos too were pretty big. I mean, what, is it Vince, Vince Vaughn had a big part in it, but Ben Stiller, Tim, Stiller, Tim Robbins. Stiller, Tim Robbins, Luke Wilson. Uh, yeah, there's all kind. I mean, once again, these are all people we kind of knew. I knew Robbins through my wife had worked at his theater and right. I'd met him a couple times. Right. And Stiller had loved our car salesman script, so I knew Ben. And when he hosted, I wrote some stuff for him on SNL. Luke obviously was old school connect for Will, and it's just you know. And Vince Vaughn was a. I didn't know. Is he an improv guy? Oh my god, he's. I, I he took a little bit of improv in Chicago, but he's a dynamo man. You wind him up and watch him go. He can he can flow. So everyone was on the same page. We all knew what we thought was funny, and you know we got the look right. We you know we knew it was going to be the seventies, but we didn't want to go bell bottoms and high heel right. shoes. We wanted to look fairly real, which still yeah. looks ridiculous. Yeah. And just had a freaking blast. We had enough money that we could, you know, make it look not too crappy. We had 20 million bucks, which for us was a king's ransom and uh, and just shot. Yeah. And at that point, is that when you realize, like, you know, we've got it. We've got a machine here that we've got. Let's let's feed this thing. Let's do as many feral you know, or uh, both of you, McKay and feral projects as possible. I mean, at that point, it was pretty clear that it was a business. No, no, because, you know, here's what you forget about Anchorman. Anchorman did pretty good, but it didn't do great in right. the box office. It made $85 million, which definitely made a nice profit. Yeah. It wasn't until a year, and then, but we did go off the good buzz on it before it was released. We set up a deal for our next movie at Sony. So we're like, we still felt like, oh, maybe we can do another one. We're right. still in that mindset. Right. Um, and then it was a year after Anchorman came out that it started to click. I started seeing people on Halloween dressed up for it. We started hearing quotes. And then in the middle of shooting our next movie, Talladega, it all of a sudden started getting to be like, oh, my God, I'm hearing a lot about this movie. Like, 
this is getting a little weird. Like, and then I read about an Anchorman festival in England where they were like meeting once a year and like, and then it started to, and then Talladega was working. And then off of that, we started thinking maybe we should form a production company. This is actually getting pretty good. We worked yeah, yeah, so yeah. easily together. And yeah. at that point, I don't think we ever said the word business, but we sure. just thought let's right. keep doing this and let's do more fun, crazy shit was kind of our approach. To at Tal- Talladega, you also pay a lot of attention to, de- to detail there as well. Oh, yeah. And how yeah. much of that, did, did you get a lot of active sponsorship? We got no money for that. No, no. Uh, Sony won't take money for uh, product placement. It's I don't know where that integrity came from in a corporation. Huh. Maybe it's because they're Japanese based or something. But right. they they will not allow you, you want to do take the paperwork. And we didn't want. Yeah, that's it. And uh, and because uh, they still do it by hand over there. They have a mimeograph <laughs> machine. And uh, so they. Um, they were, uh, I wanted real products because real products are disgusting. When you see them pop up in the movies, they make me actually twist a little bit when I see them. And that's all NASCAR is, is just products everywhere. And it's, it's a little gross. It makes you a little vomitous. So, uh, so I kept saying, I got to get real products. And they're like, well, they don't pay for it. I was like, I don't care. Like, will they give us permission? So we had written in the script, Wonder Bread for him and Old Spice for Riley. And both companies said yes. Why not? And then, well, you know, are you making fun? I mean, we kind of were making fun of it a little bit. And it's interesting. Old Spice changed their ad campaigns after that movie. They became the tongue-in-cheek product. Before that, they were just legitimate yeah. Old Spice. And then now all their commercials are jokes. So they kind of went with it. Uh-huh. So, yeah, we got all these grotesque products. We literally interrupted a scene and played an Applebee's commercial at one point. Yeah. And, uh, and it was funny because after it came out, there were a lot of people like, you sell out, you took money for it, and you know, how much money did you make for it? And we're like, well, we didn't make a dime. But you were trying to capture really what, you know, what defines Americana and what defines that culture. Exactly, like the opening dinner scene where you pan across the table and it's, K- it's KFC, it's Taco Bell, it's Burger King, like it's Coke, it's, you know, and then they're wearing jackets with sponsors on them, that, you know, Powerade, and that's their dinner table. You know, and that yeah, was- it's so funny, because I, I imagine I would have been one of those people that thought like they made a fortune, they paid for the movie with these sponsorships, but the more you think about it, it's just, it's weird and over the top. You have to do it, because it's disgusting, yeah. Now, and- in terms of like, you know, because I know, that you're, you know, your politics, I've read some of your stuff on Huffington Post, and I've seen some of the stuff, you've done the death panel shorts on Funny or Die, oh, and, thanks, and you've, man, yeah. you're pretty outspoken, it's great stuff. Now, now obviously, we draw lines around NASCAR fans. Like you know, NASCAR fans, or you know, is sort of you know, a way of saying red state. Sure. It's a way of saying you know those people. Now, how or, did, or red state is a way of saying NASCAR fans. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, what was the reaction? So, so we went down there. You have to go live there. You know, so we're in North Carolina. We're in Alabama. Here's the trick: Will and I have tons of family from the South. I got nothing. I love the South. There's cool yeah, cities, Asheville, sure. Athens, and there's good people. Louisville, great yeah. people. I'm very friendly. Like yeah. nothing but good times. Somehow, when they go into the voting booth, they lose their minds. Yeah. But so my big thing when I walked away was like, why don't Democratic candidates go to these NASCAR races? Take the booze on the chin. Because the big trick is they're just not even exposed to the idea that, like, free market is bullshit. They're not even exposed to the idea that, the, you know. Well, I talk about that in my act. I say it's interesting that, you know, you have these people who we categorize, like a NASCAR fan, and, uh, who are, you know, so quick to call Obama a socialist and afraid of socialism, but that really have no uh, problem supporting a communist government through product purchase. Absolutely. That, that you know, they, they, most of their NASCAR gear, I'd imagine a lot of it is made in China, and that more of what they oh. think— 
Hundred percent, probably. Yeah, yeah, and and they and for some reason their intellect doesn't cross that line. Or they they somehow have no problem giving forty eight billion in oil subsidies to companies that are the most profitable in the world, but yet they hate welfare. Right. You know, like, uh, and and really, uh, I mean, let's face it, the whole thing that's led to this insanity we're in is an information blockade. That's what it is. I mean, oh yeah, it's an information blockade, and we live in a, in a world where now people can really cherry pick the information they decide is true. Yep. Yeah. They, they, got, they it's got untethered. Com- it's it's untethered, and they got very comfortable with certain myths that are fun myths god i wish they were true by the way myths are powerful if the right wing was true it'd be really fun it would mean we're the best in the world yeah you just got to be tough you can yeah. pull yourself up by your bootstraps there's no systems at work it's sure. all about heart and character yeah, yeah, like yeah that'd be fucking awesome by and the it's way it's a fair playing field yeah. yeah oh that'd be i love it and yeah. if you have a gun you can protect your family sure you're not 60 percent more likely to get shot if you have a gun in your house you're gonna fucking yeah yeah it's charles bronson you sure know? Um, so I wish that was true, but so these, these myths are so comfortable and they were all marketed and advertised and, you know, it's the Marlboro man just went into politics. Yeah. And so now the information has been so cut off. You just talk to people that have no idea that like the second biggest owner of Fox is a sheik who contributes to suicide bombers families. I mean, that's jarring if you hear that. Yeah. And also they can go, that's just the way they're spinning it. You notice that's not on Fox, but then they're like, no, it is. The guy was on Fox. Yeah, but that, you guys are spinning it. No, it's a fact. Here's the actual shares that he owns. Sure, you call it a fact. I know the difference between spin and fact, and that's spin. Well, you know what they'll do? They'll do the move at that point, which I call the jump out. Yeah. Which is you jump out of the conversation and then go completely. So you go, uh, oh, all right, here the shares are. You know what, though? You liberals, let me tell you something. Oh, yeah, change the subject. Yeah, yeah, change change the subject. So uh, so Talladega Nights, we... So you're down there as assassins. We a couple times felt like it, but but here's the thing. Like I said, I love the South. Yeah. It's frustrating to me that you know nine of the ten poorest states are in the South. Like why, why? So we said we don't want to be attacking these people. We want to just be looking at what's going on and having fun with it. And if we have fun with it, if we poke fun as opposed to attack, we'll be okay. We wanted to make Patton. We wanted to make the movie that you could go sure. see it. And if you loved Patton, you thought it was great. If you hate Patton, you thought it was great. So that's what we did. And so Talladega Nights is really Patton. It's Patton. It is. Yeah, yeah. And George C. Scott is in several scenes, if you look closely. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, and that's the way it played. People down south loved it, laughed their asses off, knew we were poking fun at them. There were a couple extreme right-wing things that were like, these liberals are attacking us. And But it seemed like you had respect for the sport. In, in the movie, almost. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you, you, walk onto a NASCAR track, and when those cars start up, you're like you're on the deck of an aircraft carrier. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. Now, here's where you lose me, is five hours into the race. I'm getting a little you're, tired. You're used to the sound. I get, you're, you've acclimated. <laughs> and, and if nobody crashes, what's happening? The colors are, you, you got to keep drinking, Adam. You, you just got to sit there in the middle and keep That's drinking. It. It and, hope a, and hope a car, when it flips over and flies into the stands, doesn't hit you. And you know what? That doesn't happen anymore because no. they've made it all so safe. So the wrecks See, aren't even that They ruined it. They ruined it by saving human lives. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I suddenly am checking cricket scores on my iPhone at that point. Oh, it's, boy. Uh, yeah, you should, I'm glad you didn't make that public. No, no, hey. no, no. I had to wait before I said, no, I'm still not a NASCAR fan. Because everyone would ask you, go, yeah, it's pretty cool. No, I never have watched it since that movie was done with. I like the NFL, I like NBA, and I like soccer. Now, um, with, uh, with John C. Riley. He's sort of like they're kindred spirits, it seems, Will and, and John. Oh, my God, yeah. But, but you know, he wasn't, 
he didn't is it is it right true in saying that he didn't really see himself as a comedic actor initially well you know you know how it is mark it's like people always say oh you're a comic you're uh you're into politics you're a drama i mean there's tons of technically dramatic actors who are wickedly funny like sure. john, john ham from Mad Men's another guy like that and yeah. alec baldwin was always funny but then yeah. finally started doing comedy john c rowley's one of those guys you know right. and, and boogie nights is really kind of a comedy if you look oh at no it. absolutely yeah, yeah. So we had him do the initial read-through for Anchorman when we couldn't get it made, and he killed us. He was so frickin' funny. So right at that moment, Will and I were like, we gotta get him in something, we gotta get him in something. So we had to get on the phone and kind of talk him into doing Talladega, and then when we hit that set, we were just blown away. The guy can improvise, everything's grounded, he's wicked smart. He shows up when it's not his scene to throw out ideas, because he knows I like to collaborate yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, he's a monster, man. Oh, yeah. that guy is one of the best creative creatures <laughs> on planet Earth. So, so you, you did Step Brothers with him? And then we went into Step Brothers and we said, all right, we've, we've had a good little run here. Let's do a movie that probably isn't going to do as well, that's filthy, dirty. You knew that? We actually said that. Will and I sat it down. It did all right, though, didn't it? Oh, it did great. Yeah. It actually did better than we thought it would. Right. Will and I sat down and we said, we're making an R-rated comedy that's absurdist. We might only make $60 million on this. Are you cool with that? And we only both, 60 well, but that would be a failure given the budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we might, I, basically, we said we might lose money on this, you know. And he said, I'm good with that. And I said, I'm good with that, too. Let's do it. And then we actually did great. We made 125 The studio made money. The DVD sold great, blah, blah, blah. So it, it worked out great. But uh, that was our kind of our, like, let's really cut loose. And what uh, was the thinking around Land of the Lost? I was not a writer. Or, I, that wasn't me. <laughs> Here's the thinking, though. I'll tell you, because I certainly hear about this stuff. But you produced was, it. Uh, I was listed as a producer because I paired the screenwriters who wrote it. And they wrote this great, crazy script. And then immediately it became apparent this movie was torn between being a geeky, funny sci-fi comedy and a family movie. Well, the weird thing was... And is that, that like, crushed it. That killed that movie. It That's didn't, what it oh, because was. It, didn't, it, it wasn't clear. It was not clear. And they tried to cut it both ways. But what, what I couldn't understand is like, as a chi- I grew up with Land of the Lost. I love Land of the Lost. Well, my brother did, and I, I didn't like it. Like I, I, got, I got a sleeve stack on my wall right there. Yeah. Oh shit! Yeah. Yeah, it's autographed by. Because uh, my brother loved it, but I, I couldn't understand because, like, when I was a kid, it didn't resonate with me. Why they make a movie out of it? Why you would make a movie yeah. out of it? Well, it turns out you were right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, the shame of it was is is the middle forty minutes of that movie's wickedly funny. There's really original crazy shit in it. Yeah. But because it was framed as, is it a family movie? Is it crazy geeky? The truth is they should have made it for $35 million. They should have made it super low budget. And they should have made the greatest stoner flick ever. And that's the way to do it. But, you know, sometimes you fuck up. But, uh, and so- how does that, like, now when, you, when that happens, you know, I talked to Judd Apatow. And I know it's touchy, you know, with, with you guys who make the big movies. Like, it, the, the last movie didn't do that well either, right? Which one? Uh, the Virgin hit. Uh, well, virginity hit. Oh, yeah. we produced on that. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't. Uh, that's a weird one, though. You know, we made that for two million dollars. So, so you did uh, all right. Yeah, yeah. So it's gonna. It'll make its money. You can't lose money when you do a two million dollar movie. So, so you're, you're cool. Yeah. So okay. and you know what? It's a great movie. That's the weird thing. But we advertised it like Porky's, and it was a giant mistake because it's actually a really smart little kind of nuanced movie. Yeah, I got to see it. I mean, I apologize for not seeing it. Oh no, know. no, that's all right. No one's seen it, so you're not you're not in the wrong. But no, our last movie was the other guys. That was the that did all right. That did great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're just starting international. We could go over 200 on that. So uh, I hate to talk about numbers, but the only reason I talk about numbers is because it means do you get to do another movie? Right, again? and it's so. also your business. And I think like, you know, when, as, as somebody who runs a production company, when you start to you know, take into account 
where you start to learn something other than creating and, and having a good time and making sketches and yeah. directing and, and the fun on the set that you have to really sit there and go, well, we didn't advertise this right. Right. Or, or this movie didn't define it. Yeah, we it fucked so. up on Virginia. We didn't advertise it right. And, uh, and it's a shame because I really stand by it. It's a great... But we also did Eastbound and Down, which just opened. I just up. watched the premiere last night. I, I, you know, I really came around. That guy's really fucking funny, oh, man. Oh, he's funny, man. Now, what was the story with that? Because I know you and Will championed him from the beginning, and you found that movie of his, the kickboxing movie. There's a little movie called Foot Fist Way. They made for like $100,000 that we just loved. And, you know, it's raggedy. It's a handmade movie. But, Danny uh, McBride's the guy. Danny McBride's the guy with Jody Hill, who directed it, and this other buddy of theirs, Ben Best. So they had this TV show idea. We got behind it, and... Everyone thought it was idiotic and awful, and then it just what, what, grew and grew and grew, and now it's kind of become a big hit. When yeah. I first saw it, I was like, this is the weirdest thing. I mean, you know, what, what, <laughs> where, where does this go? I mean, I like the setting. It made sense. You know, the, the, yeah. you know, the fallen hero you know, has got to teach Jim. But then, like, now all of a sudden we're in Mexico, and, and the character, that he's another one of those guys, too, that, you know, like, as weird as he is, he's very aware of his heart and that, you know, his heart is actually in the in the right place. It's a fucked up place. But the character's heart is pretty big. He's, uh, I think it's another case where, I mean, let's face it, America's pretty fucked up right now. Uh-huh. Uh, we're a much meaner country than we've ever been. We've just attacked a nation for no reason. We've done all this fucked up shit. So you really have to look hard to find our heart right now in our country. And, but his and, vulnerability is his, his ego is so shattered and, and his, his narcissism. And he has this level of self-awareness yeah. that America actually doesn't have. That you, we can only hope that they, they get more of it. But, but the fact, Is he self-aware? I mean, he has little flashes where he'll say, you know, I'm kind of depressed right now. But listen, what I'm trying to do is... Well, I think he has that same thing where that, that, is, a, that, that is part of narcissism, whereas where that your ability to really be empathetic is limited by your ability to really see yourself clearly and connect exactly, to those feelings. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, but yet, you know, when he has those moments where, you know, they hold the camera on him and with his face contorting and this weird shame, like he's got a lot of emotions in his face. That at the heart of it, he knows he's a complete fuck up. Uh, McBride's so good. I mean, he's, he really doing, he's doing something there's only like five people can do. I mean, it really goes to the, the key mystery of the last 30 years of America is, does Dick Cheney at night when the lights are off have one second of realizing what he is? I mean, that's the, that's the question. And this is the argument we have all the time. Yeah, but is, Dick Cheney, unlike Danny McBride, would never say he was wrong. Uh, you know, ever. But does yep. he know it? Like, no. Because I don't think Danny McBride ever says it to anyone. I don't think he ever says to other characters. We just see him at night when he's masturbating to the picture the, of uh, the girl he yeah. loves. We see it in the way his eyes, the way he looks. Is there any, like, I mean, that's, I just had this argument the other day. Does Dick Cheney, when he's about to die, when he's about to release his mortal coil... <laughs> And are released from this mortal coil, or do you release yeah, the mortal coil from this mortal coil? Mor- from this mortal coil, does he have that moment of awareness? And that's 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 Danny McBride's play in that game because but, he's a drug addict, racist, steroid user, abandoned everyone, has no empathy for anyone, and he's showing us those moments. I mean, it's kind of amazing, and he's pulling it off. No, I, yeah, I, I mean, the premiere was great, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, and well, I let's talk about Dick Cheney because I think that I don't know that he sees himself as a criminal. I think that his 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 uh, engagement in politics has always been to protect the you know to to give the executive as much power as possible without you know if you have to work loopholes do it but you know he wanted to he wanted a king and he wanted to be king. Well, here's the thing though, like I I actually because we did the George Bush Broadway show, you know, Will and I, that, and, and that that's great. You know, do yeah, you, uh, did yeah. you write that with him? Uh, I did. I, I he was he wrote the first draft, but then I rewrote it with him. Yeah, you know, because I wonder about this. You know, given someone with your politics and and you seem to be sort of like 
brimming over with the the desire to you know do it more aggressively than yeah. you actually do and and i'm i'm curious as to what holds you back and and what do you think the power of comedy is in relation I, to I, it? I, it's it's tricky you, you you probably haven't seen the other guys because it's probably the most overt. well yeah i know at the the about the dere, uh, deregulation of the banks and stuff yeah yeah, yeah i yeah. was gonna go see it but it's only i got oh, i apologize don't, no don't worry but about uh, it. my producer brendan said that you know you really attempt to to explore that and to explain it to people yeah yeah, we, we hit a bunch of beats throughout the movie about the guy blowing off his union, and it turns out they're getting ripped off, and there's mentions of the SEC and Federal Reserve, and then we do this crazy credit crawl at the end with this really cool animation and this original song that's all about the shell game that the banks just pulled on us, draining 401ks and stuff. So we were probably the most overt with this one, but here's the reason I, I actually don't support the more overt kind of approach, because... I look at Talladega Nights as a political movie. I look at it no, as... I see that as we talk, that yeah. you know, you, 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 your analogies, and these are metaphors. Yeah. yeah. That you I see America as an entity, and you draw comparisons to, to the characters and the, and, and, and the thrust of the film. Yeah, you look at the scene where Sasha Baron Cohen is the gay Frenchman, has Will's arm behind his back, and says, say you love crepes, or I'm going to break your arm. And Will says, break my arm, and he breaks his arm. To me, that's like a living political cartoon. That's not... Literal. I think you reach more audience. These movies get to play in like Mississippi and Alabama, and we're going into those worlds because we have laughter and their comedies, as opposed to if I made In the Loop, which one of my favorite movies. I mean, no, I understand that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, like in my mind, like my question is that when you do, when after doing political radio for a long time and then getting sure. away from it, because you know ultimately being involved in politics is very easy to get disillusioned with all sides of it. No question, and, and that yeah. you know the compromises these guys make either because they have to to maintain office or because they're they're morally bankrupt or or, or not really committed to the people. Right, uh, is very disillusioning over time. There's right. very few guys that 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 actually stand for the people. So my question is that given the the culture we live in now, did. The idea of, of actually changing minds. Like yeah. the one trick about comedy is like some people are going to take it as just a comedy. Other people are not going to resonate with the stuff that, you know, is, is you know, of supposed course. to have some thrust. Sure. So, you know, how effective is comedy? Like, for instance, Dr. Strangelove is, is a great political satire. Yeah. You know, in terms of how that changed minds, how do you change minds? Well, here's the thing. I don't think there's ever a snapping point where you see a mind change. I think it's a slow accumulation of experiences and information. Mm -hmm. No one ever wants anyone to change their mind for them. And probably that's a healthy instinct. I don't ever want to be, I want to hear information that's going to question my beliefs, but I don't ever want to go, all right, Mark, make me believe this. You know, you don't ever want but, that but moment. A lot of guys listen to stuff that, that they, that defines their anger. That they, yeah. they, like plenty of ditto heads, you know, Rush Limbaugh followers, you know, are very comfortable oh, with him sure. guiding their minds and, and giving them their thoughts. And that's really dangerous and, and... Clearly. Yeah, and clearly really dangerous. So what I think happens is I think you get to do these comedies. They're very, you know, if people are laughing, if you're laughing at something, you know there's some truth behind it. You don't laugh at stuff that's bullshit. You know, you, you genuinely laugh at... Or I'm you sure, laugh at something that's ridiculous. Or ridiculous. Right. Or, but there's a truth behind that. Right. Because you're making an observation about the existing pattern... And routine and you fucked with it in a way that's aware of the original pattern so there's still an observation going on right. so so my thinking is that you do these comedies and, and the videos we do on funny or die if people are laughing and engaging with it no matter what their beliefs are there's at least something being transmitted and i'm not saying they're going to be the like strange love was probably a much bigger more monumental statement but uh especially in this time we live in michael moore was very clear and i love michael moore i used to write for one of his shows and and uh, he was very clear Which about uh, Awful Truth uh -huh. I wrote for for a little while. But um, 
The problem is you become a very easy target at that point, and hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent on marginalizing Michael Moore. I mean, right. he's, he's a target. Right. And to the point now where he has no voice. And if you're able to deal with people in a more unified kind of way and through sort of common things like sports, uh, laughter, yeah. sex, like yeah. these kind of common buttons, the Republicans have mastered those common buttons. But the one they can't fake is comedy. Because the truth is, what they're saying is not funny because it's bullshit. You can't laugh about someone going, oh, a liberal who wants to increase tax and spend, free market, because you know, even the people that believe it know it's bullshit. It doesn't ring true to the core. So, you know, all the comics we laugh at are all at least, you know, uh, centrist. You know, I don't think you're going to find one single comic walking planet Earth who's a, you know, reactionary right-wing guy who's funny. I mean... Well, if they are, not unlike... Uh, uh, extremely left-wing comics you're preaching to the choir exactly and, and they're not they don't have the public recognition that uh, uh, that others were well, all, the good, all the good music all the good comics all the visceral experiences are going to be I, but progressive I th- in nature I don't think there's any no I way think that's right yeah. I, and I and I think that you know once the war was won around uh, the First Amendment you know in the in in comedy in the in the 50s and late 60s that you know it seemed like the the one liberal cause was about, uh, you know, we can say and do whatever we want. Exactly. And that actually, as, as, as the, the screw turns, uh, the liberal agenda was the one to start to stifle that. Yeah, well, that's true. That's and, true. And, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, what's, what, what I'm sort of baffled by is that there is this fundamental uh, you know, denial of truth and denial of facts sure. and, and this commitment to bullshit that I think is really, you know, comedy has a tremendous amount of power to dismantle that shit. Well, I mean, I think you, you probably agree with this, and I think any extreme is wrong. I mean, all it is is about adapting and doing what's necessary. I would argue that after Jimmy Carter, one year of Ronald Reagan wasn't a bad idea. We needed a little kick in the pants. We needed to wave some flags. We were feeling really shitty at that point. Right. One year would have been great. Unfortunately, we got eight years and he destroyed our country. But uh, and I think it's it's true now. I mean, you're, we're talking about the transnational monopolies. You have to raise trade tariffs. We only pay two percent. India pays 40. They have a 40 percent tariff. China has 22%. We only have a 2% tariff. That's crazy. You notice no one talks about that. I mean, that's, you could almost say that one issue alone could change our whole nation if we went to a 10% trade tariff. Because uh, it so, would encourage manufacturing? Uh, all the manufacturing would come back here. Right. Walmart couldn't be making that money anymore. You'd see factories spring up all over this country, and you get rid of all those subsidies, the $48 billion. You get rid of the Bush tax cut. By the way, we could literally balance the budget and fix the economy right now in 10 minutes. That's how easy it is. The problem is the wall of white noise and misinformation and anger that gets in the way of it where they justify everything. How about Mitch McConnell in Kentucky voted against the Made in America provision for the stimulus package? And he's in the poorest state in the country against the Made in America provision. But no one talks about that. Instead, it's about liberals. It's about gay marriage. Because it's, what you just talked about to most people is like, oh, la, la. you know, politics as usual. Well, that drives me crazy. I've been getting <laughs> mad at people lately when they say that to me. They'll say like, hey, I'm the press lines for the movie. Oh, Adam McKay, you're into politics. And I'll literally go, what are you talking about? They go, well, don't you write about politics? I go, no, I read about unemployment. I read about our country, the debt. What, what do you mean politics? You mean like back chamber deals and stuff? Because that's what politics is. Yeah. Like, I read about murder. I read about stuff like that. But right. No, politics bores me. I don't care about that. You know. So do you have any movies or ideas in your head that would be you know, what you would consider you know, radical that you'd like to do? Well, you know, we're working on a script right now with Jesse Armstrong, one of the writers on In the Loop, about Lee Atwater. And uh, sort of a comedy bio, sort of in the vein of 24-hour party people, 
about Lee Atwater, and he's going to be delivering that script pretty soon. And I'd love to do that as like a little $8 million movie or something for HBO. Well, that'd and, be amazing. Uh, and then, you know, the coolest thing I'm working on now is one called The Boys. Have mm-hmm. you ever heard of this? Mm-hmm. It's a Garth Ennis uh, graphic novel comic book series where the superheroes are all essentially owned by corporations. They're fascists who do cocaine and have orgies, but the whole country loves them. So the CIA, a fringe faction of the CIA is afraid they're going to take over the government. So it has to bring in this group called the boys that are like a Frenchman, an Asian woman, an English guy, and kind of a nerd who they inject with the super soldier formula. And these guys have to take the superheroes out through blackmail, direct fighting, like all that kind of stuff. So... I'm super excited about this that one. That sounds this, really smart. And, and that's what I like about that is it kind of goes towards what we were talking about. It's a visceral understanding as opposed to kind of a pedantic, you know. Well, uh, yeah, I think Watchmen tried to do some of that. Watchmen, I, Watchmen Zack Snyder is one of my favorite directors right now. But the problem with it was it was a period piece. It was Cold War politics. And I think it, that's it, true. It didn't yeah. relate. And, uh, but God damn, what a beautiful looking movie yeah, he shot. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think this one's right on the square. It I think sounds like it. Yeah. And yeah. When, we're, how, how far along are you in the process? We're in the middle of rewriting the script right now. It's a pretty, uh, there's a copy of the comic right there, actually. Oh, no, no. That's a photo thing from the other guy. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're in the middle of rewriting the script right now, and I'm going to take a pass at it. And then uh, hopefully, you know, we get a green light by December, at the January, maybe at the latest. But this one, we're not walking into it like it's Will and me. So it's, it's kind of a different kind of movie. Uh, it's not really a comedy in a lot of ways. So um, fingers crossed it'll happen. Well, that sounds great. Adam McKay, thanks for talking to me. Mark, uh, a pleasure, I got to say. And also, if you had a good time, tell Will. I'm not going to do it. No, no. I hate to to, for you to put me on the spot about if I had a good time, but not a good enough time to tell Will. Well, what do we got to do to change that right now? Uh, Beers and music. All right, let me make a call. I got got (laughs) it. I'll definitely tell Will. Yeah, he's around. You know what he's shooting right now? What? A movie that's all in Spanish. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not kidding. Does he speak Spanish? He learned Spanish in two months. And you hear him speak on the dailies, and it's like he's been dubbed. He's so good. And it's with Diego Luna, a bunch of famous Mexican actors, and the whole movie's in Spanish called House of Our Father. Is Danny Trejo in it? Oh, I wish he was. <laughs> he should be in everything. I think he should be in right fact, here. That's like how, a, you I'd have like him here, here, and I tell everyone to do this show. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I could probably call Danny Trejo. <laughs> All right, man. Good talking to you. Pleasure. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly like talking to Adam McKay. It was kind of interesting. I thought it got a little dicey there with the um, when I brought up Land of the Lost, but I, you know, maybe not. Uh, I, 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 maybe it was just me. Momentary discomfort. But I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for listening. Please go to WTFPod.com. Get on the mailing list. I've been pretty diligent about that. Uh, go to WTFPodShop.com to, uh, to pick up those premium episodes. And if you go to iTunes, you can get the new uh, WTF app. Just search Mark Marin WTF, and you can get the uh, you can stream the first fifty episodes on that. Quick recap on my dates: November fourth, fifth, and sixth, and seventh. Go bananas in Cincinnati. November eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth. The Punchline in San Francisco. November fifteenth, Crow Football Room, Pontiac, Michigan. I hope to see some of you there. Come say hi. I'm going to try to bring some shirts. All right, I'm done. I'm done. We done? Good. Okay. Talk to you next time.